2: Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and I'm sorry to tell you that stocks are in the red again this afternoon. The Nasdaq is now having its worst month since November of 2008. We're 14 percent down from the November highs. We're below 14,000 on the Nasdaq, and now 1.3 trillion dollars of expiring options is adding to the market anxiety today. We will explain. Netflix is today's disaster stock, down 25 percent, its worst day in nearly a decade. Yesterday, it was Peloton sinking like a stone. But if these pandemic, darlings are now seeing a drying up of demand. Is that maybe good news for getting back to normal again? And we'll get you ready for another huge week of earnings. Next week, Tesla, Caterpillar and Intel are all on tap. We'll get the news and the trade on each going into the weekend. But we begin with stock sliding again. Dom Chu has the
3: grim numbers for us. All right. So the grim numbers are not as grim as they were earlier in the session, Kelly. What I, what I can tell you right now is that the Dow is down roughly 150 points Half of 1%. We were down over 200 points at one point. The S&P is off about three-quarters of 1%, 44.47 the last trade there. And the focus is on the Nasdaq composite hovering right below the 14,000 mark, 13.990 the last trade there, off about one and a quarter percent, 165 points at the lows of the session We were down about 2.1% to give you some context on that intraday trade for the NASDAQ. So again, lower but off the worst levels of the day so far. We'll see if that sticks. One of the reasons why the NASDAQ is not doing as poorly is because you're actually seeing specks of green, believe it or not, in semiconductors of all places they've been pretty hard hit and volatile as of late but check a look at what's happening with xilinx texas instruments nxp semiconductors and qualcomm all up between one and three percent those are some of the best performing stocks in the s p 500 right now so the chip stocks are doing their part to try to mitigate some of the damage on the downside for the nasdaq and then where there has been carnage although again off the worst levels of the day has been in cryptocurrencies The center of that universe, Bitcoin, those prices down about 10%, 38,422. We were down around 37.9 at the lows of the session. Ether also taking a hit, and so are the stocks that are generally part of that kind of ecosystem within cryptocurrencies. MicroStrategy, the software company, because it owns Bitcoin on its balance sheet, it's off about 12%. Coinbase is a trading platform, down 12% as well, and PayPal holdings to let you transact in many ways with that cryptocurrency. It's off about 4.5%. So watch the crypto space. It is being a lot more downside volatile than it has been as of late. I'll send things back over to you.
2: Oh, that's for sure. Dom, thank you very much. And we have a record number of option expirations adding to the market's volatility today. 178 million contracts, including mutual funds and ETFs, are set to expire today, along with 135 million single-stock options. Now, some have estimated the value affected at more than $3 trillion. What should we expect from these expirations? Let's ask my next guest, who also warned us a week ago that stocks could see more downside because there wasn't enough fear in the markets then. We're going to ask him for an update on that, too. Chris Murphy is here, the co-head of Driven. Strategy at Susquehanna. Chris, it's great to have you back. So let's start with the uh, expirations we're seeing. What should we expect?
1: Okay, so like you said, uh, biggest expiration of all time. January is always going to be the largest because those options are listed the longest. Uh, But this January is about 14% higher than last January. Single stocks, like you mentioned, over 20% more. The biggest question that we're we're being asked right now is how much is options expiration contributing to the sell off. You know we don't think it's a primary driver does it exacerbate near term swings. uh, And can it contribute to near term to intraday volatility sure. Um, But it's gonna have less impact on a day to day market reaction. Um, It's just gonna kind of exacerbate the moves a little bit and then when we're talking about. Uh, the uh, total notional size. Uh, just keep in mind, so many of the call- upside calls on the equity level are now out of the money, so they're going to have a little bit less of an impact, uh, and you know maybe a reason to stay away a little bit from the notional calculation when considering how much impact those are going to have.
2: Sure. So I-, I can imagine. You know, it's always like this. The experts see a number like 3.3 trillion, they roll their eyes, and they're like, "This is not <laughs> what we're talking about." But are you saying this is potentially opportunity? So if because of technical reasons we're seeing outsized moves to the downside in single stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, the market. Does that present an opportunity?
1: I mean, very, very near term. You know, the the, the day-to-day, week-to-week sell-off right now, that's not really being impacted too much by options or options expiration now what you alluded to earlier in terms of opportunities you know last week we talked about we were kind of surprised a little bit less volatility being priced into the market that we were expecting given the sell off where we were last week we were looking for uh, a couple of our key capitulation indicators that would be uh, term structure of volatility in the NASDAQ SPX and the VIX inverting so what does that mean that means the very near-term volatility levels spiking up above the medium-term volatility, right. like 90-day kind of volatility. What that's going to tell us is the stress is being priced into the here and the now, and that can be uh, a sign that we're in the later innings of the selling. We did not see that last week. We are seeing that this week.
2: Oh, interesting. Okay, so I was going to ask if we're at that point yet. So you are starting to see, you know, reminds me of commodities, what you call it, backwardation or whatever. But yeah, So mm-hmm. so are we at that point now? And usually what inning does that mean we're in for a sell-off?
1: So if you look back over the last 15 years it's been a very good indicator. Um, You know if you look back when has it missed you know great financial crisis. COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. So the question you have to ask yourself is, are we in the middle of one of those events that we're going to be talking about in the financial history books going back uh, you know, over the next uh, 10 years? Or are we in more of the typical 5 to 10% once or twice a year type of pullbacks that we normally see every single year? That's the major question.
2: And is there any other data that you're looking at right now to kind of give you a feel for which one of those camps we might be in? Uh,
1: you know, so... Personally, for me, you know, the the reason we're selling off, it's not really an unknown. You know, the Fed is going to start raising rates and pulling away some of the easing. You know, this is not a unknown, and it's not something that has never happened in the past. So, typically, when the Fed starts raising rates, you know, the market gets a little bit shocked. Uh, medium and longer term, it starts to rally. You know, that's more anecdotal. Um, when we talk about the uh, not other notable thing we're seeing right now, it's very dramatic intraday volatility, much more so than right. day-to-day volatility.
2: And what does that tell you as a final question? Because it's been pointed out by several people, uh, even last hour, it was, uh, their oil guests had such a great way of summing this up, saying that, you know, usually we see equity investors buy the dips and not in the commodity space. And lately, that's been reversed. Where you know the markets are behaving like the other one. Uh, what does the intraday swings in the in stocks right now tell you?
1: So, so we're seeing these big intraday swings. We're trying to go back historically and look for some parallels. What's really amazing is. Almost all of these intraday swings, the size of them, have happened since 2018. You know, that's been when buy the dip has been a pretty big mantra. That's when we maybe see a little bit more option trading for these uh these gamma hedging type swings. So, you know, we're only really seeing these types of swings in the very recent history. Uh by the dip has dominated the very recent history. Once again, we got to decide, is this time new uh, or is this the same playbook as before? I'd I'd lean towards the same playbook.
2: All right. Well, we will check in with you uh, in case that changes. Chris, it's great to have you on today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Chris Murphy with Susquehanna. Well, earnings season has certainly reasserted itself as a driver for stocks and the market. And that's exactly how my next guest is picking stocks right now. He's focusing on companies who got punished for growing balance sheets in 2021 and should get rewarded for that this year. For more, let's welcome in Jason Brady. He's president and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. Did I get that right, Jason, in terms of how you're looking at the balance sheets?
4: yeah look you 're looking at a market which in twenty twenty one was much more concerned or interested in in multiple expansion and in twenty twenty two is returning to the idea that earnings have to support that multiple expansion and and frankly in twenty twenty one earnings did support a lot of multiple expansion it was It was a great year for earnings. But what we're seeing today is companies across a number of different sectors. Obviously, we can talk about Netflix, but but frankly, some of the banks are disappointing on earnings, and that's creating a, a weight uh, and a move from kind of a hopes and dreams market to maybe more of a where's my cash today kind of market.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about some of the names in particular that you would like here. And I mean... You know, not that earnings season isn't a big driver, but it's been incredible. You go back to J.P. Morgan or even Jeffries before that, where we're seeing very large, 8%, 10%, obviously Netflix even more of an outlier.
4: Right. J.P. Morgan is an interesting, is an interesting name. They, I wouldn't say they disappointed on earnings exactly, but what we started to see was the effect of some wage pressure on, on their margins. And that is going to be something that we're going to see moving forward for across a number of different companies that rely on skilled labor. JP Morgan is, however, one of those beneficiaries of higher volatility in the form of what I would view as a time that trading revenue is likely to go up, a disappointment in this prior quarter, and obviously rates rising, which is something that I think is also uh, going to be a future of the markets going forward. Netflix, a really interesting one, Um, Netflix is one of those where you wonder if correction is, is a great uh, great term. I'd rather be buying Netflix here than Peloton. I mean, frankly, the Netflix chart looks like a good Peloton workout, whereas <laughs> Peloton chart looks a whole lot like a, a, a cool down. Yeah, it looks uh, like a run right I now, want to be Netflix on. Yeah. Is, right, exactly. Netflix is valued similarly to Disney, which seems much more reasonable than trying to put a multiple on negative earnings.
2: Give us a couple more names, Jason, or, or parts of the market that you think are interesting here.
4: Sure. So, at the end of the day, it feels like the Fed put uh, wine in a box and called it champagne. And what we're trying to do is, is figure out how much of a headache we're going to get from that. Looking at Apple as an example, not su- not a name that we really love. If that returns to multiples of the last decade, that's down 50, even though it's in a correction today. We're looking at names like Visa. Visa's been struggling relative to the marketplace. But it's a it's it's going to benefit from continued transactions, and in our view, fintech is something that seems to be bought by large financial institutions, as as opposed to uh, massively dis- disrupting Visa's terrific network. So there's another name that's that's interesting in the financial space.
2: And a final thought on the markets overall. I mean, where how do you sort of foresee this shaking out for the next few weeks? Are you getting more opportunistic, looking for you know finding more companies, a la Netflix or or whatnot that look attractive to you versus the t- more difficult environment, you could say, of 2021?
4: At Thornburg, we are looking at the at the fundamentals, of course. And as you said, we're going to get a lot of earnings uh, news coming up. So that's really going to drive the, the sentiment, and that's going to drive the market, in our view, again, moving from that hopes and dreams to the cash today. So as we're looking at uh, how, how investors should should position themselves— it's much more about names that you can forecast earnings as opposed to names where you can forecast sentiment. And I think that change is one that's underway in the market, partly due to the Fed and partly due to just a, a collapsing under its own weight. So a that's, that's where we're
2: spending our time. Absolutely. Right. Jason, thanks for joining us today. It's good to see you. Jason Brady with Thornburg. Nasdaq's back above 14000 for the moment. Coming up, America's largest prime auto lender gives us a gut check on vehicle sales and prices. The CEO of Ally Financial joins us next live. Plus, shares of Netflix and Peloton continuing their massive slide. A look at what both have to do to grow customers and the growing pressure from the competition. And as we head to break, Disney, Boeing and Visa are leading the Dow lower right now, despite that being one of Jason's picks, while Nike and McDonald's are the biggest gainers. We're back in a moment.
0: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
5: What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise, our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global
6: asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
2: Welcome back. Netflix and Peloton were two of the biggest beneficiaries of the pandemic, and the auto industry was two. Shares of Ally Financial rallied to over $60 a share last summer. They've since dropped below 50, and they're down 3% today despite an earnings beat on the top and bottom line. And auto loan growth, that was up 20% year on year in the fourth quarter. For more now, I'm joined by Ally Financial CEO Jeff Brown. Jeff, it's great to have you. And we're also curious, what's the latest state of play in the auto's market?
7: Yeah, Kelly, thanks so much for for having me here and a chance to showcase uh, Ally. We really had a terrific year in 2021. $46 billion of origination. So that's the highest loan growth we've seen, or really really origination since uh, 2004. So quite dramatic growth. Obviously used car prices, a factor that's on everyone's minds. Uh, We think the used car market's gonna stay really strong this year. And all of this ties into some of the issues we've seen around supply chain disruptions and the inability for manufacturers to get a lot of new vehicles back on the lots. But all of these trends actually panned out to be really beneficial for Ally. Uh, we are the largest uh, prime lender in the U.S. and one of the largest used car lenders in the U.S. So this market's been quite good for the yeah. financial performance of the company. We were really pleased to announce great earnings this morning. It was a tough market backdrop, obviously, but uh, really great numbers from Ally.
2: Well, and, and it's that's why I'm, I'm glad to have your view from kind of, you know, in real time as to what's happening here. I mean, we all expect I think a lot of people expect, maybe we're wrong, that used car prices are going to massively reset, right? Or that sales will massively reset because it just can't keep going up at 50% a year or whatever happened last year. What gives you the confidence to say you think that market will remain strong this year?
7: Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of this comes back to issues on new car production. And we did see new car inventories at the end of the year tick up just a touch. But I think in conjunction, it's all very, very modest on what we've seen. And so demand for uh, used cars and for cars in general remains very, very strong. Consumers are still buying cars, again, evidenced by $46 billion of production we did last year. But we think the normalization in used car pricing is going to be very, very gradual And early signs. uh, in 2022 is the market staying quite strong. What I will tell you within our financial projections that we provide to the street, we call for a 15% decline between uh, the start of 2022 and the end of 2023. I think the reality is going to likely pan out to be something different. We think used car prices are going to remain quite robust for the foreseeable future.
2: If I were Chair Powell, I wouldn't like what you're saying because The best way to kind of achieve lower inflation rates is to have, you know, big resets in some of the hottest parts of the market. And, And what you're describing is more like a permanently higher plateau. Is that right?
7: Yeah, I think so. I mean, for, certainly for the foreseeable future, you're going to expect to see used car prices remain high, and clearly that's playing a big role in broader inflationary trends. But whether it's food, gasoline, energy, you name it, uh, prices are certainly on the rise. And I, I think the Fed's very mindful of some of these uh, more permanent dynamics that are here to say. And certainly this is also factoring within wage inflation as well. And that's part of the reason that gives me confidence in kind of the strength of our outlook, strength of the used car ma- our, uh, outlook as well, where really if you want a job today, you can get a job today and you can get it at a much higher wage level than you could a year or two years ago. Well,
2: it's funny you bring that up because in light of what JPM and, and Goldman told us, I was going to ask, albeit you're a very different kind of financial business, are you yourselves facing pressure on expenses from higher uh, costs in that sense?
7: Yeah. I mean, we as a company try to take a long-term look or a long-term view when we provide expense and revenue guidance. And fortunately for us, we have seen expenses tick up, but we've seen really dramatic revenue growth alongside of that. So for example, last year, our revenues were up 25% and it's hard to project that level continuing into the future. But we try to take a very balanced uh, outlook on both sides of the income statement. And so we will see expenses modestly tick up in 2022 around areas like employee compensation, benefits, mental health, things like that as well. But overall, we feel really good on the positive operating leverage that we're going to continue to be able to deliver as a company.
2: Very interesting. Jeff, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it.
7: Kelly, great to be with you.
2: Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. Jeff Brown is the CEO of Ally Financial. Still ahead, Big Tech's antitrust battle is heating up and one of my next guests says it's only going to get worse for Big Tech. He joins us with what he sees for them ahead and what the company should do about it. Plus, the meme stocks are getting crushed so far this year. AMC down 37%, GameStop down nearly that much. A lot of first-time investors are getting their first taste of the tax implications on these trades as well. All you need to know ahead. Welcome back, everybody. This has been the toughest stretch of the market lately, this afternoon slide into the close. The Dow is near session lows. We're down 240, so we're only about 20 points off that level so far. The NASDAQ back below 14,000. It's the worst performer with a 1.5% drop today. Every sector is negative for the week. Consumer discretionary is the biggest laggard, down more than 6%, having its worst week since the pandemic, March of 2020. Financials are seeing their worst week since June. And tech is now down 10% in January, on pace for its worst month since 2008. You can blame the chip makers for a lot of that. Elsewhere in big tech, Amazon is the biggest laggard today. It is set to post its fourth straight week of losses. The shares are down 10% in the past four days, are down 4% today. Anyway, that four-day stretch is their worst in two years. Check out some of the names seeking to new 52-week lows as well. We have Roku, Disney, Palantir, Twitter, and PayPal. Disney, by the way, is now 30% off its recent high. It's the biggest decline of all the Dow stocks. It's down another 6% today. And SunPower is plunging on weak fourth quarter guidance. The shares are now 70% off their recent high from about a year ago. There you can see it down almost 17% today. Now let's get to Christina Evelis. Maybe she has some better news for us in the CNBC News update. Christina? Oh, well, then I guess I should just toss it back over to you, <laughs> Kelly, because I don't. But here is what's happening at this hour. Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin wants to make sure parents decide whether their children wear masks in school. Youngkin is asking his state's Supreme Court to dismiss a challenge to his order, allowing parents to opt out of school mandates for their kids. On the news, storms hitting Virginia and the southeast, where they're expected to hit next. That's going to be tonight at 7 Eastern. In Illinois, an Amtrak train has been stopped in its tracks after a freight train derailed. There are no reports of injuries, but residents are being asked to avoid the area. And at the Vatican, Pope Francis is promising justice for victims of clergy abuse. This a day after a report found his predecessor, Pope Benedict, failed to act in four cases of abuse by clergy when he was the Archbishop of Munich. Pope Francis says the church is still seeking its way forward in handling abuse cases. Sorry, Kelly. Couldn't do it. I couldn't couldn't lighten the mood. We feared. Still, we appreciate it, Christina. Thanks, Christina Parts and Evelis. Maybe next week, Intel, Tesla and Caterpillar are all set to report results next week. We have the action, the story and the trade on all three stocks in earnings exchange next. Welcome back, everybody, to Earnings Exchange. Things really ramp up next week for earnings. Maybe we should be bracing ourselves because nearly half of the Dow components are reporting. So in this edition of Earnings Exchange, let's hit a couple of stocks, starting with Intel reporting next week, one of 2021's worst performing chip stocks, now one of the only names that's actually positive so far this year. They also announced today they'll pour at least $20 billion into factories in Ohio as they expand capacity. So is it all going to work for the stock? Joining me with the story on Intel is own Michael Santoli. And here with our trades today is Gina Sanchez, Chantico Global CEO and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to you both. Mike, Intel, what are you watching?
8: Well, the big question is whether expectations have been pounded down low enough going into this report. It's not about this year's earnings for Intel. Everyone knows it's going to be a retrenching and reset year. Uh, The last six quarters, though, Intel, the stock has declined on earnings uh, by an average of 10 percent. That's sometimes when they've beaten the number, too, because the guidance has been bad. To me, it's all about incremental progress toward the long-term plan, not really about what the quarter or even, you know, the rest of the quarters this year is going to deliver. That's how the stock is valued right now. It's on a maybe turnaround 14 times forward earnings. Only a quarter of all analysts have a buy on it. So, I think you could argue that that expectations should be pretty low going in.
2: Are they starting to turn a corner here, Gina? Do you like the stock? So I actually think that they are
9: starting to turn a corner here. There's a couple of things that are coming together for Intel. In the near term, you have a big refresh cycle that's happening just post-pandemic. Everybody's ordering new PCs. That's going to help in the the near term. You also have Mobileye that's going to IPO. But in the longer term, they're making some pretty significant investments uh, into new fabs in Ohio and Arizona, which was announced earlier this year, uh, last year. And you have uh, the potential for congressional support um, through a chip legislation that would also benefit. And so that's the longer term that's pretty positive for Intel.
2: All right. So you're, you're mildly bullish, I think we'll call it on that one. Uh, we appreciate it. Michael, thank you. Mike Santoli, we'll see you again soon. And let's move along to Tesla, the $1 trillion auto giant down 9% to start the year, despite crushing estimates for deliveries in 2021 and in its fourth quarter. Analysts will be watching for comments on production delays around the Cybertruck and demand for vehicles as competition heats up. Maybe we'll even hear Elon Musk back on the call. Phil Ibeau is here with the story on Tesla. Phil?
10: Kelly, that's the expectation that we will hear from Elon Musk during the analyst call and what people will be focused on separate from the results for the fourth quarter, which, by the way, don't be surprised if they exceed expectations. They have knockout numbers in terms of deliveries. Average tange- average transaction prices have been climbing higher. The real focus is going to be what does Elon Musk say about Tesla's product roadmap? Now, that will obviously include the cyber truck, which many people believe is going to be pushed further into 2023 do we get better clarity on that what does he say about austin and berlin in terms of production starting and what kind of indication does elon musk give us about perhaps future models maybe they're not going to show us a future model but they may say something like look a particular type of vehicle is in our wheelhouse and we think that we can roll that out at some point in the next couple of years Those are the kinds of things that people will be focused on when he talks during the analyst call. So we'll see if this product roadmap is really a roadmap or is it, you know, some indications. And then we're left to wonder, okay, what exactly will Tesla do over the next couple of years?
5: Right. But
2: if Elon himself is on the call, at least the possibility remains a little bit elevated that he'll say something like that. Gina, the stock's back below a thousand today. What do you do with them? This
9: is a tough one right now because the market sentiment is really against very, very uh, highly priced stocks. If you look at the market, everybody's value hunting and that's not really what Tesla is. So I'm not sure that an earnings beat would would save it from seeing more declines as the market sentiment is just against uh, highly valued stocks right now, regardless of what the
2: outlook looks like. By the way, Phil, since we already know the delivery number, I'm not you know, accustomed to following Tesla's results as if revenue and EPS matter so much, because as we've said, so many other factors move the stock. But what do you think is the most important financial metric this time around?
10: Oh, I definitely think it's going to be what are their gross auto margins and their average transaction prices. I think those will really tell us if things have slowed down at all, which we do not expect, there's no indication that that is the case in terms of Tesla's actual business. So this obviously becomes, as Gina mentioned, a question of valuation. How much are you willing to pay for this company right now?
2: Yeah, fair enough. All right, we'll leave it there, Phil. Thank you very much, our Phil LeBeau on the Tesla beat. And finally, Caterpillar, the industrial giant, actually up 4% to start the year as investors look to the value trade. And Any lingering benefit from the infrastructure bill? But will the slowdown in China impact the bottom line? Seema Modi is here with what to expect next week. Seema?
11: Kelly, it's been a standout this year outperforming the industrial sector while supply chain constraints are not expected to go away in the near term with Omicron. There is this narrative building on Caterpillar around its longer term story remaining intact. At the center of that debate, though, will be China. Do we see a much needed rebound in the second half of this year? And does a company like Caterpillar, Kelly, hold up well on the face of rising rates on this idea that it's highly diversified, profitable, stable dividend, potentially entering upcycle with this infrastructure bill around the corner there are also questions though around technology at the consumer Electronics show john deere had a very big presence there right it's been one mm-hmm. of the more innovative industrials putting a lot of money towards its m a where does caterpillar stand on that front will they unveil some new products when it reports earnings next week it was
2: refreshing to see Deere get so much buzz <laughs> at the electronic show and everyone talking about you know self-driving tractors and all the technology that's coming gina do you think this is going to be caterpillar's year so I think Caterpillar has one huge advantage going for it, which
9: is that it is stable and it is not highly valued. This is a great stock. And if you, as I mentioned, that market sentiment really favors a stock like Caterpillar because it's not expensive, uh, it's a good grower, and it is still being benefited from the continued recovery. Uh, the recovery in the developed economies are starting to slow, but we should expect a recovery to really take hold in parts of the emerging world that really haven't gotten to recover yet. Uh, so we still have have a good outlook, uh, net net for for Caterpillar going forward, and we're pretty bullish on it.
2: And Seema, it is a, you know a reminder that as much as we're talking about the U.S. maybe you know experiencing more of a reopening revival this year, I can't quite figure out what's going on with China. They just cut rates, and you know their COVID strategy um, paid off in the early stages of this pandemic, but we'll see about now.
11: And interestingly enough, uh, Kelly, if you remember during the Trump administration and at the height of the uh, U.S.-China trade discussion, Caterpillar was seen as one of this proxy, right, when it comes to China's trajectory. It makes about 5 to 10 percent of its sales in that country. So absolutely, the commentary we get from CEO Jim Upleby on the outlook for China may actually provide better guidance than the economic data Hmm. we get from China. I think that's actually why Wall Street looks to this company for guidance.
2: Yeah, no, a great point. It's Ford PE still below 19 as well. Gina, a quick final comment before we let you go. Could you just give us one on the markets overall as we as we wrap up a pretty frustrating week? You know, look, the markets
9: right now are are really if, if I would if I could describe this market, I think it's a GARP market. I think this is a growth at a reasonable price market. We're still seeing growth. Growth growth is still above expectations in uh all of the earnings expectations in every sector except financials are expected to be above 10 year averages uh, for this year. So that's growth. Um, but the market hates anything that's overpriced right now. Um, so not a pure value play. I think it's a GARP play.
2: A GARP play. <laughs> it's like an onomatopoeia. It's one of those words that sounds you know, like what it is. Um, Gina, thank you very much. We'll let you go. Gina Sanchez, Seymour, thanks to you as well. Sima Modi reporting. And up next, while FTC Commissioner Lena Khan faces high-profile scrutiny of her stance on big tech, a Senate panel yesterday dealt the industry a blow, why companies need to be ready to face off with both enforcers and lawmakers, and how much it'll cost them next. Welcome back to The Exchange, the antitrust battle between lawmakers and big tech getting even fiercer after a bipartisan Senate Judiciary Committee approved a bill barring them from favoring their own products over those from competitors. My next guest says the scrutiny will continue to intensify and tech companies will have to spend big money and be ready for prolonged standoffs, especially when it comes to deals. Joining me now is Dan Clifton, head of policy research at Strategus Research Partners. Dan, it's good to have you. A dizzying couple of weeks here. In terms of, you know, Lena Khan giving kind of her blueprint, now this Senate committee. How, let's start with the Senate uh, legislation. How seriously should companies take this?
8: Yeah, sure. So first, let's just say that when legislation slows down on a macro basis, you start to see more regulation. So this week, the regulator said, we're looking at changing the antitrust rules and the merger guidelines, and that process has started. And it was timed almost perfectly to what you're asking about And that is the Senate Judiciary Committee successfully passed out of committee legislation where big tech will not be able to preference their own items. And if there's a theme between these two different buckets here, it's that big is bad. Anything that is big is bad. They classify who will be affected by revenues or market cap, number of users you have, and that seems to be where the attention is. This bill passed out of committee 16 to six. That's within a 50-50 Senate, Kelly. So it shows you there's bipartisan support. Wow. But when you when you tally up the members uh, and what their comments were yesterday, a majority of members still express reservations with this legislation. So it's got a long way to go in the Senate. There's going to have to be changes. This bill passed the House in June, very similar, and it's been stalled in the House ever since. And particularly California members are worried about their own companies being attacked. There's issues over U.S. competitiveness, issues over U.S. privacy, privacy particularly with Apple, and then uh, other types of more specific issues that will be dealt with on a company-by-company basis. But you can start to see this pricing in. Amazon's probably the most affected by this. It's down 6% in the last two days since this bill passed out.
2: Wow. All right. So you think this definitely is a reason for their underperformance. Let me ask you one. I don't know if you're the right person to ask or if this is even the right question to ask, Dan. But I mean, is it is it legal to to sort of regulatory wise go after companies or deals because of their size and only for that reason?
8: Yeah, no. uh, Under existing antitrust law, which is pretty clear, being big alone is not a reason to do it. Even being a monopoly is not alone to do it. But you have to be abusing that market power for that deal to be there, antitrust law is pretty clear. It's been there for 40 years. And what you're seeing on the regulatory side is that any deal really over $10 billion, no matter what industry. I know we like to talk about big tech, right. but this is affecting rails, it's affecting insurance, it's affecting airlines. It's unbelievable how big of an impact the Biden antitrust regulators already have had. And that's why you're seeing merger spreads widening out. You have multiple merger spreads in this $10 billion or more range that is double digits. And some of them are over 20%. And they probably would have went through under President Obama or President Clinton or definitely George W. Bush and, and Donald Trump. So something has changed here. It started to really change around the month of June. And it was this idea that once you get too big, not only are, do you have this kind of market power, but it starts to affect wages. If you look at the comments about the Microsoft Activision deal, particularly Elizabeth Warren in the last couple of days, she's talking about how this would impact workers. That's something that's going to be a big focus in the merger guidelines that the Department of Justice and and Federal Trade Commission uh, start to release in late March.
2: I was pretty stunned to see Activision trading at such a discount to the $95 deal price. It's probably one of the biggest I can remember for a deal that the only reason anyone could come up with it not clearing is because of its size. You know, Correct. I I didn't yep. hear a lot of you know, figures cited about Microsoft's share in the gaming market. There's Activision, as you can see, still not moving much um, from when that deal was announced. So what would you tell investors here? Should big should should. I mean, if it if it takes a couple of years for Microsoft to close this deal or it doesn't even get closed, what's going to be the fallout from all this? So you hit all the important points. You're going to have a widespread because of uncertainty. And Microsoft
8: guided that this is going to take a year, year and a half to get through. Why would I want to sit there at a 15% spread and just sit there and waste my capital on that now? So as you get closer to those guidelines, I think you'll see the merger uh, ARBs come in. But this would probably be a deal with a much lower spread if we didn't have the events over the last year in terms of this. But I want to be very clear here. Antitrust allows you to go to court AT&T was challenged by Donald Trump, they went to court and they won. It's a really beautiful process. The goal of the regulators is to extend this process out, threaten court and say, if you're gonna be in, you gotta be in for 18 to 24 months, that's gonna be the threshold for companies. Are you willing to go all the way to the end to be able to do this? And that's a different hurdle now for deals because they're not gonna change the law in this specific area. One other big point that you just referenced though, When Google announced its merger of Fitbit, every single antitrust senator and congressman that you see out there passing this bill criticized that deal when it happened. Kelly, they were awfully muted when Microsoft announced its deal this week. And I think that is something very, very interesting because it's telling us that Microsoft has basically laid down some of the groundwork and have more political support. They're viewed as the good guy Relatives to some of these fang names that are viewed as the bad tech. Very, I mean, it's very real big.
2: Yeah. Microsoft is bigger than them, but they're the good tech at this point. I know. And now we think Fitbit. I mean, it's so small. Why would anyone even care? Dan, it's a great point. Thank you so much. It's good to have you today. Dan Clifton Thank joining me from Strategus. Still ahead, taxing your attendees? I'm missing something here. Uh, Meme stocks are having a rough start to the year. But after monster rallies in 2021, we'll get a look at what Reddit traders need to know ahead of April 15th next. Welcome back. Some of the retail traders new to the market may have a big tax surprise heading their way. Sharon Epperson is here with what these investors need to know. Sharon? Sharon?
5: Well, you know, Kelly, tax filing season starts on Monday, and last year's trading frenzy over meme stocks like AMC and GameStop could have an unexpected impact on tax returns for some new investors. Take AMC. Its sharp rise and fall early last year made it one of the meme stocks of the moment. It became the top holding for Gen Z investors and finished the year in third place behind Tesla and Apple on Apex FinTech Solutions' top 100 list for investors ages 24 and younger.
12: In most cases, it was a buy and hold. I think in some cases, they actually added to the position really smart as this thing was climbing. Um, And then in some cases, some folks took profits before the end of the year.
5: New investors who took profits in AMC and other stocks need to know how they'll be taxed on these investments. Short term gains from stocks held for one year or less before being sold are subject to ordinary income tax rates. Long term gains from stocks held more than one year will be taxed at zero, 15, or 20 percent. A net capital gain is considered income, and an increase in income could reduce certain tax breaks.
4: Student loan interest, uh, child tax credits, uh, you know, deduction for medical expenses. Uh, these things are all tied to your uh, adjusted gross income.
5: The higher your adjusted gross income, the fewer tax breaks you may be eligible to get, Kelly.
2: Well, and we're talking about kind of if you've had gains. What about if you've had losses? What should you do tax wise?
5: <laughs> well, you need to know the tax impact there as well. And investors with more losing stocks than winners can deduct up to $3,000 against their regular income. Now, if your net capital loss for 2021 is more than that limit, you can carry the loss forward to future years. The full amount? You can carry the loss, yes. Every year, use that 3000 If you have a lot, wow. you may take several years to exhaust that, but you can't use it against your gains. Yes. Interesting.
2: You could use that for decades. All know. right. So it's great to make profits. That's what happens if you have losses. Um, is there a longer-term tax impact from trading that new investors should be aware of?
5: Well, one of the things that you should know is if you have significant gains, then that factors into your income and that is what is used to determine your estimated tax. For the next year. So if you have had significant gains in 2021, your estimated taxes for 2022 could be higher also. And so that's something that you need to consider, tax experts tell me.
2: All right. Sharon, thank you. It's great to see you, our Sharon Epperson. And to read more about this, go to CNBC.com slash invest in you. And we should note that NBC Universal and Comcast Ventures are investors in Acorns. Up next, shares of Peloton and Netflix getting hammered over the past two days, both down more than 20%. We'll look at what the two companies need to do to fix their growth problems and stay competitive next. subscribers, riders, users, call them whatever you want, but both Netflix and Peloton are seeing growth struggles. Peloton says it plans to reset production levels and is considering possible layoffs to make its business more flexible, while Netflix is on pace for its worst day in nearly a decade after noting competition is starting to eat into its subscriber growth, despite adding more than 8 million subs last quarter. Is it fair to paint both of them with the same brush? For more, let's bring in Dan Gallagher, reporter for The Wall Street Journal, and Mark Douglas, CEO of advertising software firm Mountain. Welcome, guys. Dan, I'll start with you. What, what do you do with Netflix here?
12: I think uh, I think Netflix is going through this uh, pretty painful adjustment. At least investors are readjusting. How are they going to value this business? Because with the you know the Q1 you know subscriber forecast that we saw really indicates that you know growth is going to be slower going forward. And this is a company that's been growing its user base reliably in the twenty-five percent range annually, um, even in the years ahead of the pandemic. And now, you know, Wall Street's modeling that's more of a high single-digit number in the years ahead. Um, and so because investors have been so focused myopically on streaming editions, they have to figure out a new way to uh, e- evaluate Netflix as more of like a revenue cash flow growth story as opposed to like a fast user growth story.
2: Yeah, in every way, Mark, it seems like Netflix is maturing. It, you know, its P.E. is way down from what it used to be. At last check, it was around 35 you know, it faces competition. It's a mature business now. But what happened with this most recent stretch? I mean, why do you think all of a sudden they're having a hard time adding as many subs as they expected?
13: Well, I think it's really simple that everyone has access to Netflix and so I mean it's literally hard to find someone who doesn't have a Netflix account or have access to one but that's actually an opportunity for the business that for years they've been encouraging sharing of accounts but the company can slowly start to essentially make them more difficult and drive more subscribers and I think one thing that hasn't been explored for Netflix at all but they they really should consider and there have been rumors of it which is to have an ad subscription supported offering so they can go beyond the 70 percent market share they have um, into, you know, really the corners of the market and get every single entertainment consumer.
2: I also thought, Mark, it was interesting that you're warning a little bit about this idea that, yeah, it's a hit driven business. And so, you know, Netflix is going to keep coming out with these great shows and that'll drive subscriber growth. And what 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 worries you about this model?
13: Well, I think that the thing that's interesting about Netflix is hits come and go. It's 10 episodes a year for anybody, for HBO, for, for, for Hulu, anyone. But then you as an entertainment consumer, you're looking for what to watch, and that's the space Netflix dominates. It's the time, the entertainment time, between hit shows, both on Netflix and in other worlds. And that's why they actually really dominate this market, I think, in a way that no one else does. And I think them becoming hit-driven is actually not healthy for the business. They want to continue to be the go-to choice every night of the week, not just when your favorite show is on.
2: I guess, Dan, they were by default in the past because they were kind of the only game in town. But there are other streaming services that you can linger on. You know, the the famous joke about Netflix is you spend half an hour watching nothing, right? Just just kind of poking around.
12: For sure. And um, I think, and I wonder also if we're going to see the company reevaluate some of how it releases content too because Netflix is now one of the few streamers left that's like new that does a dump when they have a new series it all comes out every episode and all the major ones Apple Disney um, HBO those come out you know episodically and I think the benefit of that is that people that really want to watch those are are, you know sign on for longer periods Um, and you're getting to a point where if there's one or two shows you like on Netflix you can essentially sign up for a month you know when that show hits watch it all and then you're done um, and I think that's – Netflix might want to reevaluate that going forward. We'll see. Um, but, it, you know, they, they might be looking at a lot of options here for how to kind of address this new phase they're in.
2: Yeah. Turning to Peloton, Mark, before we go, I have to ask you, you know, you kind of rode to the rescue last time with Ryan Reynolds and, uh, and Mr. Big after that Sex in the City episode killed him off. You guys had this really fast creative-as-a-service ad where you said, no, 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 forget it. I'm still here. Everybody's okay. What do you do now? Yeah.
13: Well, look, Peloton has a healthy business. I mean, but figuratively and literally. They're in the in the, in the the fitness market. And I think fundamentally, everybody else in that market would love to have the Peloton brand. So they have the brand. They have a product people love. And I think that's a strong point for them to go forward from. I think they could come down market in terms of price points and product and just kind of get back to basics and the company would do fine. I would personally, I'm a big Fan of Peloton, I use the product, and um, yeah, I think the stock is great in the long term.
2: Should we expect any other fun ads uh, in the near term, or you think they're they're kind of beyond <laughs> that right now? <laughs>
13: I, 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 th- I think right now we're not um, creating any ads for Wall Street analysts. So yeah. there's nothing coming <laughs> out today as <at> uh, <laughs> mark.
2: Fair enough. Uh, again, it's been uh, such a difficult little stretch for them. We thank you guys for joining us today. Mark Douglas and Dan Gallagher talking about the growth troubles for both Peloton and Netflix. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time.
0: Start planning today at aarp.org slash moneytools.